Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 227, French Whack-A-Mole. Last time, Aunt Serene had finally fallen to the British troops under General Sturgis. That was the good news. The bad news was that, surely, Vichy would react, and they would use troops from the island to the south, but also additional troops from Dakar in West Africa. Thus, the fight had only just begun. True, it may take Vichy just under three weeks to send men from Africa, but Vichy naval vessels were of the more immediate threat. The French sub Lujero had been some 500 miles, or 804 kilometers, north of the island, escorting a cargo ship to Djibouti, when the British came ashore. The sub was ordered to head back to Diego Suarez Bay and sink any British vessel it came upon. But at 5 a.m. on May 7th, a swordfish from the illustrious went after the sub with depth charges. The sub had little chance of sneaking up on the enemy ships as there was almost constant air patrols for just such a threat. In fact, the six-plane patrol is what found the sub trying to make for the port town as there were, of course, British vessels there. Sub Lieutenant Alexander, one of the patrol's pilots, spotted the sub and dove down to confirm his suspicion. Sure enough, it was a sub, and then it started to dive. Alexander quickly came around again and dropped charges to either side of the submerging vessel. When the explosions came, the sub was pushed back to the surface, only to start to go down again. But this time, there would be nothing but physics and gravity in control. She would not return from the bottom. Fortunately, there were survivors, and they were taken aboard the Karen and questioned. Yet, the threat from the sea was only beginning. Another Vichy sub, this one, La Mange, had been escorting another convoy. This one had been bound for the island of Reunion, off Madagascar's east coast, near Mauritius. It, too, received a message to turn for home and attack any British vessel it came in contact with. But this sub-captain would play the long game. Instead of seeking out a target, he placed his sub at the entrance of Diego Suarez Bay and waited, hoping the Indomitable would make an appearance. And sure enough, the captain's hope came true. At 7.56 a.m. the next day, May 8th, the Indomitable was spotted approaching. Waiting, the word was finally given and Le Mange let loose a spread of torpedoes. A crewman on the carrier, fortunately, spotted the telltale signs of a torpedo and passed the word along. The carrier took evasive action, which allowed the explosives to pass just by the carrier by 45 yards off its bow. Now, it was the Brits' turn. The ships with the carrier, the destroyers, Active and Panther, rushed forward and laid out their own spread of explosives, i.e. depth charges. But unlike the sub before and the sub now, this La Manche would never see daylight again, not even for a second. All 69 men on board were lost. A third sub tried as well to help turn the tide of battle. The Vichy submarine Gluia had been patrolling around Mahunga along the west coast, about 600 miles or 965 kilometers down from Courier Bay, when she received a message to head north and sink any enemy ships there. The Gloria moved out and was in position by 10 a.m. on May 6th. This is when the British first arrived. Now in place, she submerged and went looking for her first victim, 
but the sub's periscope was spotted by an albacore from the Indomitable on patrol duty. So Captain Bezosh of the sub went deeper and headed north, figuring the British would assume he would return to the south. But the captain was not running away. He was biding his time. And sure enough, he returned to the area that afternoon, this time from the north, which allowed him to get the Indomitable in his sights at 2.35 p.m. At the moment, the sub was about 12,000 yards away, but Bazosh wanted to get closer. This was his one shot. Yet as the sub crept forward, one of the destroyers protecting the carrier spotted the sub. Again, the sub went down. Again, it scurried to the northern tip of Madagascar. When it became dark, the Gloria surfaced to recharge her batteries. Still, Bazosh would try for the next two days to sneak up on the Indomitable, but her escorts were working overtime and keeping everything away. During the night of May 8th, Bazouche was told that Anserain had fallen, so he went back south and would, in time, head for Dakar. As we have already seen, Vichy tried to respond to the initial landings of the enemy with air attacks. On the 6th, we covered that several Moraine fighters had been shot down while trying to disrupt the landings. Now here, in the early hours of the 7th, three more Moraine fighters were approaching Courier Bay from the southwest. And as happened before, Martlet fighters, really U.S. Grumman F-4F Wildcats from 881 Squadron, responded, as they were already on patrol. The section leader of the squadron went in first, firing at the lead Moraine. Within seconds, the French fighters' wings and engine were damaged. She would end up crash-landing into the sea. And having practiced working as a team, the two other fighters followed their leader in, firing on the two other French planes. Soon, those two joined their leader in the sea. But of course, the million-dollar question was, where were the Japanese? Were they going to attack, and would they come right at Anzarain? Okay, that's two questions, but each one is worth a half a million dollars, which the British would have happily paid to know the answer. The truth was, the Japanese heard about the Allies' attack on northern Madagascar, and so they sent out a single Kawanishi H-6K flying boat from the Adaman Islands, about 3,800 miles away, or 6,115 kilometers away. The islands are off the Burma coast to the southwest of Rangoon. The flying boat, called a Mavis by the Allies, could only get so close, but her crew was able to confirm the attack. Also, the British Eastern Fleet canceled its attention-getting run and went back to normal duties. But would that leave the door open for an Axis attack on the island coming from the east? Churchill certainly feared this and spoke to his chiefs of staff about possible options to help guarantee that the Japanese did not come this way. The Prime Minister's contribution to this problem was to announce that Diego Suarez was so important to the Allies that it was about to be turned into another Singapore. But the men in uniform around him frowned at this, and for several reasons. First, it had taken the Japanese all of a week to capture Singapore, back in February of that same year, 1942. Next, to label the island's main harbor as a second Singapore might actually invite the enemy to try, as, again, they had such an easy job of it the first time. 
The chiefs instead went with making it public how important Diego Suarez was, that they hoped to hold on to it, but all the while they were secretly rearming it. So should anyone, Vichy or Japanese, come to the island's northern tip, they would be in for a nasty surprise. And yet, it seemed that Britain's worst fear was about to come true when the admirals Frick and Namura from Germany and Japan respectively met just five days after the British took Anserain to discuss the Axis response. The Germans, of course, were busy with Operation Barbarossa. Thus, it would have to be a Japanese response, if there was to be one. While Tokyo thought this over, the British and their assembled troops got busy re-fortifying their recent possession. With the Arangia Peninsula surrendering, the 17th Brigade spread out over it, certainly putting men into the fort at the Malmelon Vert, roughly in the peninsula's middle. This left the 29th Brigade to position themselves in and around Aunt Serain. With this done, they began digging a trench system that shielded the airfield and the road to it that led to the south out of Anserain, and it would be these forces that would act as a reserve for the 13th Brigade. They were positioned three miles south of the airfield on some high ground. They would be the first line of defense when and if Vichy roused themselves in the south. But then, an oversight was discovered. However this happened, no trained coastal defense personnel to man the coastal guns had been brought along. Shouting would do no good now, though Seifert was keen to scream at this moment. Instead, he had some of his officers go ashore and show the army personnel how to handle the guns that would be key to defending against an attack from the sea. But some good news, the tanks that had been damaged upon trying to reach Anserain were hauled into a location where the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers had set up a repair shop. And fortunately, they found that while the French shells had dented the tank's armor, it was not pierced. So the dents were beat out, repairs were made, and the tanks were put back into action. The engineers also get points for repairing the coastal guns damaged in the fighting and putting them back into play. But not to be outdone, men of the Royal Navy went aboard the French sloop that was in the bay, and they helped themselves to the ship's guns, and probably liquor storage. For now, it seemed, the defense of northern Madagascar was a catch-as-catch-can operation. Strangely, for the Battle of Mascar was just getting started, not near its end, the Admiralty wanted Diego Suarez to become the main base, of the Eastern Fleet. It made sense to not have ships stationed too close to Japanese operations, but the island wasn't completely in Allied hands yet, which is exactly what Admiral Somerville said, and the Eastern Fleet was currently his. No, he decided Kenya would be a better place for a base, though Anserain would be used to repair cruisers and destroyers, thus not putting all their eggs in one basket. But this was easier said than done, as the port facilities at Anserain had been damaged by the fighting and sabotage. For now, Courier Bay would have to be used. This did not make Seifert happy, so Lieutenant Colonel Dean of the Pioneer Corps took responsibility for the Malagasy prisoners, 
There were about 2,000 of them, along with 100 Arab dock workers, and together they were put to work, making Anserain usable for the British fleet. And the Brits must have done something right, for when the Malagasy were allowed to leave their barracks a few weeks later, they quit the French army and stayed on as civilian workers. With all this underway, Seifert sent to London on May 11th what he believed would be needed to hold the bay and port city against any future attack. It was a shopping list, bordering on wishful, to be sure. It goes, one infantry brigade group, two garrison brigades with eight brand gun carriers per battalion, one independent machine gun company, one regiment of field artillery, one heavy and one light anti-aircraft regiment, one squadron of Valentine tanks, and one squadron of armored cars, plus all the associated support units, including signals and a dock operating company. Oh, and trained coastal gunners, if you please. And lastly, Seifert said it would be wise to bring in another fighter squadron to help repel the attack that had to be coming from the south. At the moment, there was a unit of South African Air Force reconnaissance bomber pilots at Arachart, again, the airfield to the south of the bay. But Seifert, he wanted more punching power in his air unit. After all, they could choose to barely hold off an attack from Vichy, or the Japanese, or they could hound and harass it when it tried to come north. It was an easy decision for him. But probably the most human moment of the war came when the British asked the French police, clerks, school teachers, and city officials if they wanted to continue with their jobs, but only now the British would pay. The French came back with an answer that we can all appreciate. They said, we'd be happy to keep working, to keep getting paid so we could support our families. But if we willingly work for you, we will lose our retirement funds. The records for those were in Paris, and Vichy had the key. Now, the locals continued, if you ordered us to continue working, then we would have no choice, and we should be able to get our funds one day, out of those accounts. The British, almost dumbfounded, shrugged their shoulders and ordered one and all to get back to work. This the French people did, except the senior government officials, which makes sense. They were expected to remain loyal to Pétain, and Paris would be less forgiving of them when all this was over. So the higher-ups would be sent back to France. But there was one issue that all French or Vichy on Madagascar agreed on. Their hatred of de Gaulle. As Brigadier Lush told London, his job was to organize and keep the civilian workers going. The people here have a universal hatred against the fighting French. And again, this was by all sections of the community. Lush went on. If de Gaulle or any of his set foot on this island... Law and order could not be guaranteed. And as the rest of the island was still against them, the British knew to keep the tall Frenchmen away. Either way, here was an Allied victory, or at least a partial one, and the Western press made much of it. But stressing something that this podcaster should have stressed a long time ago, people like FDR and Churchill started using the term 
United Nations early on in the war. Yes, it signified the nations that were united against the Axis powers, but behind FDR's eyes, he was already thinking of a post-war world and how the term United Nations could be continued to be used. The Allied press stressed to their readers that the British-led forces had beaten the Axis to Madagascar. The New York Times wrote, The British occupation of Madagascar takes the initiative away from Japan in the great battle which will soon begin for the command of the Indian Ocean. Madagascar, in Allied hands, is as much a defeat for Germany as for Japan. But it was Washington that was more to the point in regards to this battle and Vichy in general. A statement came out that said, if France, or what was left of it, was unwilling or unable to defend its territory from the Axis, then the Allies would be forced to take said lands and hold them against the designs of Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo. But more than that, the statement also said that Vichy would never become a part of the United Nations. France, yes. Vichy, no. But this tit-for-tat was just getting started. German-controlled newspapers encouraged the French and all the African nations of rising up against the British. But any thoughts of revenge were dashed when the U.S. president replied to this encouragement by the Germans. FDR put it plainly, any warlike act permitted by the French government against the government of Great Britain would of necessity have to be regarded by the government of the U.S. as an attack upon the United Nations as a whole, and that, if essential to the common cause, the U.S. would not hesitate to send troops and ships to support the British in Madagascar. Now that's support. But then there was de Gaulle. To be fair to the tall Frenchman, he did not even hear about Operation Ironclad until a reporter called him and woke him up at 3 a.m. on the first day of the invasion to get his reaction. De Gaulle may have been woken up, he may have been caught off guard, but he was equal parts politician and soldier. Getting the reporter off the phone, he had his headquarters put out a statement to seem in lockstep with London. It declared to be satisfied with the British action and that most of the 25,000 French on Madagascar were supportive of de Gaulle. This would lead the readers to think that the invasion and occupation was to help the free French. But that was on the surface. Inwardly, de Gaulle and his staff were fuming. On May 6th, de Gaulle's French National Commissioner of Foreign Affairs, M. Dijon, wrote a long letter to the British Foreign Office. It basically said, besides venting that the invasion may have direct and imminent repercussions on the fighting French forces and territories, the British action against Madagascar may well shock many French people, even amongst those most faithful to the Allied cause. Which was cause for concern, but not as much as the idea of Vichy and the Japanese using Madagascar to make sure that the British never sent another ship to the east during the war. But the letter was not done. It also went on to state that, unless the Free French were given a more active share in the war, relations between the French National Committee and the Allies would be strained, to say the least. 
Now, there's no way to say this nicely. London certainly wanted the Free French fighting alongside them, in most theaters. But there were hurt national feelings to consider. And putting de Gaulle anywhere near ironclad would hurt more than help the British. That de Gaulle did not see that or want to see that, well, that's his problem. Responding to this, on May 7th, Churchill spoke in the House of Commons, where he praised the British troops, lamented the French blood had been spilled, and that this had been done in part to one day liberate all French territory of the Axis. A few days later, the Prime Minister stated that Madagascar was to be held for the French until after the war. The British had no designs on the island. This was only a war measure. But when you're de Gaulle, France's answer to MacArthur, you consider yourself to be at war with anyone who disagrees with you. So this follow-up of Churchill's did not help. From day one of Ironclad, British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden had been trying to meet with de Gaulle, who would not hear of it. Finally, after the sixth day, the two men met, and the fighting on the island was almost matched by the words and emotions behind those words between these two men. First, Eden re-emphasized that Britain would only hold the island until after the war was over. De Gaulle replied, no, you are trying to steal France's empire. Eden shot back with, we didn't include the Free French in Ironclad, as we did not want to be responsible for French fighting French. De Gaulle replied with, I accept your words for whatever they're worth. Now, starting to get hot under his collar, Eden returned the dour comment with, Well, General De Gaulle, would you rather have the British than the Japanese in Diego Suarez? And then Eden's next remark, which was supposed to calm the French general, sent him to new heights of truculence. Eden, trying to stress that London would be taking a hands-off approach to the civilian side of the island, stated that the same system and personnel would remain to run the island, which of course meant Vichy, not Free French. But the British were trying to keep things calm, and the fighting wasn't over yet. First, de Gaulle stated that he was absolutely against this, but when he gave the reason why, he delivered an insight that Eden, and maybe even himself, did not fully appreciate at that moment. The general replied with, Either this will come off, and the result will be the neutralization of a French territory under Allied guarantee, which we will never accept, or it will not come off, and in the next few weeks, you will have to undertake alone, in the interior of the island, an expedition which will begin to look like a conquest. It would be the latter. Eaton tried to placate de Gaulle by releasing a statement that said, It is the intention of His Majesty's government that the Free French National Committee should play its due part in the administration of the liberated French territory. But not only did this not appease de Gaulle, it infuriated the Vichy officials on the island that Brigadier Lush was trying to work with and make certain promises to. But leave it to Admiral Seifert to sum up this new situation where both sides of the French were screaming at the British, who really did not have time for this, 
the Admiral secretly told his wife, no one can understand why we had to utter a word about the Free French in Madagascar. All it did was to make the whole population hostile, and what the next move is, I'm damned if I know. And yet, dear listener, if you have secretly believed all this time that de Gaulle enjoyed venting his spleen at the British more than the Germans, I think you're correct, and what he did next may prove it. Word was sent to de Gaulle that declared, yes, we made the statement that the Free French should help in Madagascar, but we did not say when. That was the last straw for the French general. He told Churchill that, I'm seriously considering taking my fighting French and moving to the Soviet Union. Then he messaged the Free French colonies and told them to be ready to renounce their association with the Allies. And he was ready to ask the Soviet Union to receive the French National Committee. But if de Gaulle thought he could take his ball and leave the playground, he was sadly mistaken, for few could outpetulant Churchill. As the Prime Minister told his Foreign Secretary, I think it would be most dangerous to let this man begin again his campaign of Anglophobia, which he is now more than ever attracted to. Six weeks later, Churchill repeated his concerns. There is nothing hostile to England this man may not do once he gets off the chain. But de Gaulle would have the last word. First, he did not pick up anything and move to the USSR, as Churchill would not let him. But before this year was out, the fighting French, with no British support, well, not direct support, they would invade and occupy the island of Reunion off Madagascar's east coast. De Gaulle had his own victory.